You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review, powered by Blaze Media. And we give you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And a lot of people do not want to hear the truth. They want to hear that the urine on their leg the manure being shoveled on them by the political elites is really just water. It's really great. Um, and those of you who want to hear that, you could turn into faux news, F-A-U-X news, or often pronounced Fox by some. Um, but we actually tell you that unlike Leon Lett in the 1993 Super Bowl that he thought when he thought he had the ball in the end zone and was dancing at the 10-yard line and Don Beebe knocked it out of his hands, sometimes you actually don't have the ball in the end zone. And the only way you're going to get it in the end zone is if you know you don't have it in the end zone. Um, You can't deem yourself as having scored. You can't deem yourself as having climbed Mount Everest if you didn't do it. And that's what we seek to do here. Speak the truth about where we stand on the issues, why what we're doing is not working and what we should be doing instead that has been a hallmark of our show. And I'm and I'm proud that we did it last week. And frankly, you know, we weren't standing alone last week. It was the first time in quite a while that all these conservative media voices were actually saying, hey, we're getting screwed on this budget deal that didn't need to be signed. We could have signed the short-term CR. And then something funny happened midday, early afternoon on Thursday. As we mentioned on our Friday show, once it became clear that the president was going to sign the bill, suddenly people changed. The same people who said this is horrible and he should just sign a short-term CR started saying, well, uh, you know, this is the best you could get. This is pretty good. The president really ate their lunch. And then some of them even started attacking people like me who were saying the same things they were just before Trump actually made his will known. And you know what? As I say often, it's not even the president's will. A lot of it is the people around him, and you do Trump no favors, no favors by covering for his weaker side, which is really the swamp staff around him. A lot of times his instincts want to do something different, and that's why we need to stand strong when the White House asks us to stand down. I hope to get to that a little bit at the end of the show. Now, we're going to have a special guest on today because I am half drunk from this ridiculous Cub Scout trip I just got back from. What a dumpster fire going with eight, nine, ten-year-olds. Uh, man, we went on an overnight and I got no sleep. They were so noisy the whole night. Everything was a disaster. And I'm so disoriented. We're, we're officially off at Conservative Review uh, Monday for President's Day. But, you know, I mean, to me, President's Day is George Washington's birthday. That's on the 22nd. Uh, this is this is nothing. This is like, you know, mattress, mattress sales day. So, um, you know, to me, I'm going to be working. But I am just so tired from that trip. And this is driving me nuts. But anyway, we're going to have on today... For the third time, Todd Benzman. That's a 
pretty pretty di- pretty good distinction. There aren't too many guests we've have on we've had on three times, and I could have them on every week, frankly. Uh, and let me just set the table here today. Most people know is President's Day, and and again, it's in my book, it really doesn't have much meaning if it's not George Washington's birthday. What is distinct about February eighteenth, if you haven't noticed, and if you if you've never marked the date, it's the anniversary of Iwo Jima, or at least the beginning of Iwo Jima when the Marines landed on that island. And the Japanese literally fought to the last man, both there in Okinawa, the last two major battles of of the war. And you know, often we kind of think is Normandy and and Omaha Beach, the landing in the in the European theater as the high water mark, and then after that, the war kind of you know started started to come to an end, with the exception of the battle battle of the Bulge and the difficulty of those few weeks. But otherwise, that was really the beginning of the end. It was very difficult. We lost you know probably two thousand people at Omaha Beach. Uh, but what a lot of people forget is almost a year later, well maybe nine months or so later, the Japanese theater was was hell. I mean, it was going on into 1945. And, you know, you look at the grit of what happened there at Iwo Jima. It is unbelievable. Um, that, that was a nation and a, a country, a culture in America that knew what was at stake, knew what needed to be done, left nothing on the table. They, they, they created these flamethrowers to... Um, throw fire into these caves where the Japanese were hiding. I mean, and and again, this was when Pearl Harbor was attacked. We didn't even have our mainland attacked. And we knew we were under attack. We knew what it meant to be a sovereign nation. We knew we had to uh, preserve the idea, but also the physical borders of a nation state called America. And we were willing to do everything it took. And indeed we did. And, And boy, was that a that a trip. So, um, you know, we salute our, our parents, grandparents, the greatest generation that took, took part in that campaign. Today, we're dealing with what might, some might suggest is the worst generation, a generation where we have the erasing, the erasing of sovereign nations, of sovereign nation states. I'm, I'm going to have a theory here and, uh, well, you know what? For, first off, before I bore our guest here, let's bring on our guest, um, Todd Benzman, as you well know, he is quite a unique fellow. If you haven't seen his Twitter feed, it's at Benzman Todd. You really need to follow him at Benzman Todd if you don't already follow him. He's senior national security fellow for Center for Immigration Studies, our friends over there at CIS, terrific uh, think tank, putting out a lot of intellectual firepower on the issue of immigration and borders, sovereignty. Um, I'm friends with almost all the guys there, and and uh, Todd's a, a new friend this year. We've become very close. We've had him on the show twice before. The thing about Todd is that he was he's a born and bred journalist. You know, like I say, I hope you guys learn a lot from my shows and my articles, but I'm not a journalist. I'm an activist, I'm a conservative figure. Um, I'm not I'm just not a journalist by DNA, and I'm not gonna pretend like I am. Todd really is. He worked for many years for the Dallas Morning News, the Hearst Papers, he covered uh counterterrorism, he covered Latin America, and then he got into Intel for Texas Department of Public Safety, worked in their Intel division, and he's introduced me with to Jason Jones, the other terrific friend uh, that I've come to know 
come to know from Texas DPS over the last couple of months. And uh, because of Todd, I, I've learned all that information from Jason. So this has just been a great partnership with him. And then now that he's out of Texas DPS, he went back into journalism as well as working for CIS. We reported last time on his trip to Panama, where everyone's denying Middle Easterners coming across. I don't know. I don't see any. And meanwhile, he came back with the pictures, the videos, the special migrant camps that they set up in Panama and Costa Rica to deal with Africans and Middle Easterners coming over. And we might get to new information on that today. But he actually took another trip, and we're going to link to his article at his website in our show notes, um, at Piedras Negras. It's, a, it's, a, the tech, it's the Mexican city right over the border from Eagle Pass, Texas. It's a little bit southeast of Del Rio, so it's just in the Del Rio sector over from Laredo. And if you remember, there was a migrant caravan mainly of 1,800 Hondurans that are being detained by the Mexican authorities in this camp. Now, as you remember from Todd's trip in Panama, Todd just has a way of getting himself into places and uh, just finding stuff. So I figured we'd have him on to report back to us what he saw there, what was going on, and most importantly, what that portends. What are the latest migrant trends? What is going on? And therefore, of course... What do we need to do? We can't lie to ourselves and say, oh, we're not letting in the caravans. Nothing to see here. So today we're going to explore what the heck ever happened to that big Tijuana caravan based on what Todd has seen with this new caravan in Piedras Negras. So with no further ado, Todd, I have diarrhea of the mouth today. I've talked enough. Take it away, Todd. Great to have you back. (laughs) What did you see on the Mexican side of the border? Okay, well, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I just got back um, a couple days ago and uh, spent time on both sides of the border. I wanted to check out, goal was to see what the Mexican policy was in handling these migrants, uh, an actual uh, migrant caravan that they had detained uh, in it, almost in its entirety, and then also what the Americans were doing uh, defensively on the American side. Uh, so I started out with the uh, Mexican side and was able to get into the camp. Uh, the actual camp was uh, is in a um, a former uh, ceramics uh, maquiladoras uh, factory, and uh, they had about um, when I got there on Thursday, maybe thirteen hundred of them left, and I was there in time to kind of see how they were leaving and the process by which the Mexicans were. Uh, starting to dissolve the problem that they had. There'd been a number of disturbances. There was a lot of pressure from uh, human rights advocates and whatnot, and from uh, on the outside and from the migrants themselves on the inside to just let us go and make it to the U.S. border where we can, uh, as we know, uh, once they get to the U.S. border, then they are able to um, access the catch and release loophole is they're basically in uh, permanently. So they want in. And uh, the, what the Mexicans had done was they prevented a, by detaining all of these uh, migrants, they were able to prevent a mass run on the U S border on the Rio Grande there. 
But what I saw them doing was processing them onto buses in in groups of about 100 to 200 and shipping them to other Mexican cities with special humanitarian work visas. The visas are good for about a year. Um, they were easy to get right there in the camp. I watched them form up in you know very large uh, multi-line groups uh, to get to, to to apply for these visas, <clears throat> and then another very large group that I watched as they were the uh, Mexican immigration would pass out spaces on the bus. And uh, the one bus that I saw there that day had on the door that it was going to Monterey, Mexico. Supposedly by this Wednesday, the entire camp will be closed. They'll just shutter the whole thing. And that uh, even since I was there on Thursday, there's probably about half as many migrants in that camp as there were uh, today as there were on Thursday. So uh, what they're doing essentially is they are shipping them to other parts of northern Mexico, Hermosillo in, the, in Baja, uh, Monterey and Tamaulipas, and um, other places around that are still within a strike, a stone's throw of the U.S. border, you know, a few hour bus trip uh, any which way. There's nothing, there's no enforceable provision in these visas that they're providing that would prevent any one of these migrants from heading to the border, which is what they all want to do so they can take advantage of catch and release. So essentially what we have is, in the public view, a dissolution of the problem. No migrant, thousands of migrants trying to get in. But what's really happening is that every single one of them most likely will end up in and across the border and into the United States. So let me take what you're saying a step further, and I want to get back to some of the conditions in the migrant camps and things like that. But for now, many of us thought when the Mexican government, the governor of Colia, you know, the the province there, the state where Piedras Negras is located, they started getting tough. They were like, we're not letting these people in anymore. Um, on the American side, we had the show of force from the feds and Texas DPS at Eagle Pass to demonstrate that, you know, we're going to protect our sovereignty. We're not going to let them in. Let's take a step back to the big caravan. It was around election time. It was marching on through uh, Central America to Mexico in October, right around election time. It got to the San Ysidro uh, crossing at San Diego and that was the biggest caravan we ever had. And there were a lot of them there. And the president was like, we're not letting them in. We're not letting them in. And to this day, even last week when he capitulated and signed this, he gave all his speech when he declared a national emergency. And he said, we've successfully ended catch and release with that. We're not letting in the caravans. Remember, you heard about those caravans. We're not there. They're not letting us, They're not being let in anymore. I want to float a theory by you that the two of us discuss privately. And I want to put this on air uh, so people could see where we're headed. I feel that I've made a mistake until now. Um, it, it might sound hyper-technical to some of our listeners why I'm so obsessed with this, but there's going to be meaning to understanding where what exactly is the nature of the flow. So, you know, I was speaking to a mutual friend of ours, and he's really obsessed with the caravan. And, and his whole thing is that this is not just 
an organic migration of poor people from economically depressed countries that are responding to the incentive to come here because of catch and release. That's certainly, you know, bringing them here. But there's a pull. There's a, 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 in addition to the pull, there's a push from organizers, left-wing organizers in Bolivia, in Venezuela, even backed by Russians, to subvert and challenge the entire notion of of a border and a nation state. And they're kind of weaponizing the migrants as well. And he felt it was important for me to focus on that aspect. And I, I, I agree with him that it was a problem, but I said, you know, hey, isn't it more of an issue with the in terms of the raw numbers they're mainly coming on their own the caravans are a problem but hey it doesn't seem like we've let too many of them in but every day we're letting in several hundred at a time in different areas and some days it's it, it's equal to 15 1800 across the entire border and you know so so the caravans aren't that big a deal it's the organic migration isn't it in fact true that based on what we know now, there's strong reason to believe that what we suddenly see coming in the last four months, right around when we started having these caravans in 100s, 200s, 300s, when CBB says that as of a couple of weeks ago, they had 28, now it's about 31, 32 groups of one to 300 at a time coming in at Antelope Wells in New Mexico, which is so random. We've been reporting on that the last couple of weeks. It's never happened before. We've never had groups this, you know, this large. We've never had them come in in such random places. Don't you, in fact, have a theory that a lot of those coming in, let's say in Antelope Wells, they're not coming directly from the main routes in Guatemala through Mexico, through the main cities without a stop and just going to New Mexico, that these are in fact a lot of the remnants of the caravan that the Mexican government is pretending to block, that the American government, DHS, is pretending like we're not letting in, but in fact they disperse them into not ones and twos, but groups of 100 and 200 send them around, and then we're seeing them at places like Nogales, Arizona, and Antelope Wells in New Mexico. I, I, I think that um, ultimately the evidence will, will support this. We have very strong indications right now that what the Mexicans have actually done is put a sprinkler head on the end of a, of a fire hose. And what I mean by that is that instead of just um, opening the, the spigot and flooding one part of the border with 6,000 migrants, they catch them, put them in detention, keep them away from the border, and then sprinkle them farther and wider along the border so that nobody really quite knows. It doesn't look as, it doesn't have the same optics, right? So you have in Tijuana, for example, according to the uh, Associated Press uh, reporting of about four or five weeks ago, 2,900 of those were granted the same kind of visas that we are seeing the Piedro Negras migrants uh, granted, that I watched them being granted. And then they were shipped out to supposedly work somewhere else in Mexico. But the LA Times and the Washington Post, when they're reporting on this, quoted Mexican government officials and a lot of the migrants themselves saying, we have no intention of staying and working in Mexico. We, we want to go to the U.S. border. 
and take advantage of um, asylum, which is basically, you know, they um, they enter in and take advantage of the catch and release. So according to the media reporting about the Antelope Wells crossings, uh, 28, at least 20, as of January, there were 28 groups of 100 to 200 migrants that were showing up out of the blue at that uh, at that port. And that roughly equals the number of humanitarian visas that were issued to the Tijuana migrant caravans. And then maybe uh, caravan uh, riders, rather. So I think that if somebody were to just ask the question, and I just haven't gotten around to it myself, uh, to CBP, are you from the Tijuana caravan? Are you coming from Tijuana? Simple question. How many of you came from Tijuana and how many of you have these humanitarian visas? And I would suspect that once that question is asked, that the answer will be very, very many of them are the humanitarian visas. Uh, None of these migrants that are being granted these visas are telling anybody that they want to stay and work and, and live in Mexico. They didn't come all that way to live and stay in Mexico. They came all that way to enter the United States. So the bottom line is if the policy of any given administration, this one or another one is we don't want mass migrant caravans with thousands of people emptying over our border and that's exactly what they're doing then the intention of the of the policy uh, all all of the best intentions are are being circumvented right yep so from the administration's point of view uh the migrant caravans are all coming in anyway despite you and from the Mexican point of view, you know, we're doing you a favor by at least not having a fire hose on one spot. We're sprinkling them around so that you can't really see it. See, this really scares me. The reason why I think it's important we get this right, again, I used to think like, hey, you know, obviously there's no such thing as in, no such thing as people coming up 100s, 200s, not, not in large quantities. They're either these larger caravans or people that come in ones and twos, just the individuals that come. And obviously they were coming more and more as this uh, catch and release forest uh, asylum, UAC loopholes kept being blown open by the courts over the last few years. But what we really didn't see until the final months of last fiscal year. So that's last summer and then really intensifying the last four to five months is this business of groups of several hundred coming over at once. So in my mind, I thought that meant, oh, the cartels are taking the ones and twos and they wait until there's a certain time. The coyotes working as brokers for the cartels go and then organize them into groups of several hundred and use them as diversions for, you know, against the border patrol. So they surrender themselves and then they get in their criminal activity. And I still think that's true um, that they're using them as diversions. But what I, what I think is probably not true is I don't think it's from the ones and twos that they build. It's not addition. It's subtraction. It's from the thousands of the caravan people that they're, you know, the so everyone kind of gets their piece here. And this is what scares me because it's the perfect screwball against the American people. So in other words, the migrants 
get it best because it's the best incentive, you have the safety of coming over in a caravan. If our theory is correct, not all, but most of them, in fact, did come over in a caravan, which is much more dangerous because it's a lot easier to do it. And if it's easier, more people are going to do it. So they came over. They're just, and they're just dispersing to other parts of the border instead of coming into Tijuana with tear gas and, you know, Todd, I wanted to get to that because, because that's the thing. In some ways we'd say, look, it's good that at least they're not rushing the border in thousands, but politically in some ways, I, I, well, I mean, we don't ultimately want that, but in some ways, there would be a benefit to forcing the issue because the American people are not going to tolerate that if you have that image that everyone would see that's not a subtle invasion, that's a real invasion, and you know, no one's going to want that. And that's why the American government's going to clamp down. We're not going to have that. And therefore, the Mexican government responds, all right, fine, we're going to hold them back. But then what they do is give them the visas, like you're saying, put them on the buses, and that's where you're seeing several hundred show up at a time. For a while, it was almost every day. It kind of still is, at least every other day. We're getting groups of, sometimes it's it's multiple in one day. You'll have in um, you know Arizona, you'll have in New Mexico. And, and again, it's like, This is driving people nuts. And Hidalgo, New Mexico, they never happened. It was a checkpoint manned by one person that had an average of four vehicles passing through every day. There's nothing there. So if you look at a map for our listeners, take out a map, pull up Google Maps on Mexico, and you'll see there's no straight shot to get into New Mexico. Um, you'll find routes in the, into the Tucson area. You'll find, obviously, routes on their RGV and Laredo in eastern Texas. You'll find routes into El Paso, the city. But to go west of El Paso into New Mexico, there's no infrastructure there. And these people don't walk 2,000 miles, contrary to po- popular thought. They um, pay for rides, and they they get dumped off a mile or two or three from the border. So, you know, that's why we haven't seen much in New Mexico over the last number of years. But now they're trying to just, wouldn't you say, shuffle them in, unassumingly, where – because. I myself didn't think it was the caravan. So certainly most people aren't going to think it's the caravan. And, and just before you respond, Todd, just to be clear, I have a email into the El Paso pre- sector press office, public affairs, you know, hey, are some of these people from the Tijuana caravan? I've not heard back yet. Well, keep on that. I, I It's too early to tell at this point whether the Piedras Negras migrants who are, uh, I want to say about probably at least 1,500 of them are being given these visas. Uh, Whether or not those people are going to be crossing over in Arizona or California or somewhere else in Texas. But if the theory is correct, and I do believe it's correct, the question that needs to be asked when they start coming over is, are these the visa holders that were in Piedras? And uh, if the answer is yes, then, you know, we have a policy problem. We have an issue where, um, you know, you're you're trying to prevent caravans coming in. If that's the administration's official policy, uh, it's being circumvented and the Mexicans are helping to circumvent it. And maybe a a better policy might be to, you know, if, if you don't want caravans coming in, have your allies in um, Mexico and Guatemala and elsewhere stop them at their own borders as they're coming in, right? 
So uh, not not once they get to our border and they can just be sprinkled around the uh, other parts where nobody can really see it, but it's still happening. Yeah, and, and that is very significant, I think, from a policy standpoint to get this right, what the latest trends are, because that means the caravans... See, I wasn't so worried about the caravans. My point was like, yeah, that's 10, 15% of the migration and there because it's so public, you know, we're being careful not to let them in because we don't want to stir people up too much and tick them off. So, you know, instead we, you know, we have the quiet migration and that's really where the problem is. But now I think what we're establishing is much of the quiet migration is the caravan round two dispersing. And so let's go back to the um, That's right. holding facility. It's, it's, this is yeah, yeah, okay. No, be, be, before that, yeah. What were you gonna say? Well, I was just gonna say that you know it's it's a it's a um, the question is an obvious one that is begged if you are a newspaper reporter that covers immigration. This is it's it's very obvious <laughs> this thing. So uh, I kind of half expect you know one of the big newspapers to come out with a big blowout saying, hey, the migrants. The migrant caravans, you know, just disperse and they're just still coming on. They're all still coming over. <laughs> and here's the proof. They all have these Mexican visas. Yeah, so so that's the thing. You look at it. But anyway, um, yeah. you look at it from everyone's perspective. Again, the migrants, this is very dangerous because it makes it safer for them. Now, I don't want people to get raped and harmed by, you know, cartels. But I'm just saying what what bothers me here is it's the perfect invasion because it's going to incentivize more of them to come because you have the protection of the car of the caravans. But on the other hand, um, so an interesting dynamic, if, if you could speak to both of us heard um, reports that the Gulf cartel threatened to kill some of the caravan members because they hated the caravans because it was disrupting, you know, the typical quiet migration that they put, shove across the border and make money off of. And here you come in with the protection of a caravan and you just charge straight at our border. It kind of bypasses them. So isn't it true, Todd, that now they're all together? Now the cartels, so they don't initially organize the caravans. That's, again, seems to be more of a push from the politics of, of the, some of the bad players in Latin America. But once they come to Mexico, now they co-opt them. So the Mexican government wants to show that they're magnanimous. They're working with America. It's kind of a rope-a-dope. Yeah, yeah, we're, we'll process them here. And, you know, I was even getting taken in by that. Hey, is AMLO kind of, you know, maybe better than we thought he was? And, you know, he's, he's behaving himself. But really, no. Then they give them visas. Then there's a second leg of the trip. They go from the holding facilities, whether it's in Piedras Negras, whether it's in Tijuana. And then that's when they'll be dispersed to various places. And then, then that's where, let's say, you know, in the Antelope Wells area between Sonora and Chihuahua, where Sinaloa has control, that's where their brokers are going to get their cut of the pie. Um, again, they get their cut of the pie. The Mexican government gets what they want. So isn't it true that the Mexican government has no problem having great facilities? They'll they'll you know house them in, in good conditions because it's not permanent. They're getting rid of them. Yeah, I mean, what, what we've seen with – I mean, the Mexicans are under pressure too. For one thing, it's expensive to house 6,000 people or 2,000 people and feed and, and shelter and – you know, provide uh, for for that many people in one place, and then it's even worse when they complain. The the uh, detainees 
provide testimony to outsiders that's designed to create more pressure on the government to just release them so they can keep going to the border. And we saw a lot of that. Um, you know, we saw uh, migrants in Piedras, uh, you know, being very vocal about, you know, how deplorable the conditions were inside and that the Mexicans were um, mistreating them and that the conditions were completely inhumane and intolerable. So therefore, let us out so we can go to the border. Uh, we saw a lot of that. And then uh, then there were also, you know, disturbances that looked something like rioting, um, you know, on a small scale. Uh, there are some mattresses burned. That adds to the pressure on the Mexicans in addition to the financial burden to release them. That's what everybody on the inside and their allies on the outside want to have happen to, to, yeah. to be released. So, you know, it's it's unpleasant for the Mexicans to intervene this way and, and expensive as well that's i mean that that's kind of interesting if you think about it because the mexican government all things equal you think hey they don't want the problems on their shores and we certainly saw that in tijuana a little bit where local officials local residents were like you know they sounded like us in america you know they kind of got a taste of the of, uh well, we've been dealing with for several decades, and now they got it from the Central Americans. But I get the impression that AMLO and you know some of the governors, they're ultimately not that worried because, like you said, they're passing through. They're they ain't staying there, <laughs> right? And and you know, if some of them do stay, then you know, great, they'll take jobs, and you know, jobs are they need jobs, they need people to work in the metal factories and that sort of thing. So you know, I think some of them actually did stay, um, but. You know, I, I suspect that uh, the vast majority of them just went right on to the border just like they wanted. But then, you know, the claims, I mean, what, this has future implications because there are already caravans forming down there again. They're going to yes. keep coming because because the success of the sprinkler system, I call it. I mean, I just, you know, kind of came up with that. I didn't think too hard about it, but it is. It is kind of an apt metaphor that, you know, you can sprinkle them in a way that nobody really notices uh, to, to o over the border, that those downstream will see that and say, success, I'm coming too. I want to be sprinkled. I don't mind staying for a couple days in, in, a, in a Mexican detention thing. So and, and, and what I think what's so what we important need to, we need to watch for is that there'll be more of these caravans and they'll be treated in exactly the same way. And if that's the policy, if we if we're fine with that, then we're fine with that. But that's not what I'm hearing from this administration. They're not fine with it. And from the American uh, polling of the American public, the American public is not fine with it either, with just unconstrained mass illegal immigration over the southern land border, not something the the country as a whole wants. So if that's the case, then something else needs to be done with the sprinkler system. Somebody needs to identify that there's a sprinkler on and to figure out something other than that. What, what, what I'm finding very fascinating about your analogy, and I didn't think about it when we spoke privately, it's very interesting that one of our points here is that if Trump has one executive bullet to fire in his gun, this was essentially our Friday show, you need to fire it on the 800-pound gorilla in the room. What's the 800-pound gorilla in the room that is the end point of all this? It's catch and release. 
It's the only thing we've shut down as a nation state. The only thing we're doing so far is you can't rush in in thousands, right? That much we're going to stop. And frankly, I think even the Obama administration would have stopped that because they just couldn't allow that to happen. There would be such outrage in this country. But really, there's the outrage is no less significant or it shouldn't be less significant because it's funny. As I'm talking to you now, I'm looking from looking at a picture exclusively taken by Breitbart, Texas. Uh, Brandon Darby, our friend there, put it out. And you see um, leaked photos show U.S. border facility overwhelmed by migrants. Now, this is in El Paso. If you if you follow the routes and we're going to continue following that throughout our next couple of shows. After they go to Antelope Wells, well, there's nothing there. CBP takes them to the El Paso station. That's the main area. And you look at it, that looks like the backside of the invasion. I mean, rather than actually seeing the thousands traverse the border, you see them before, and now you see them after. And our theory is, these are a lot of them. Some of them are inevitably ones and twos coming up on their own. But a lot of this is is clearly from the caravans. And that means yeah. that the people that are trying to subvert our sovereignty, um, you could speak to this a little bit more to our audience. Um, I, I feel bad I wasn't able to show up at the event from our mutual friend, Joseph Humeyer. Uh, his organization put on an event. You were the keynote speaker last Tuesday. Uh, Breitbart did report on it. They sent a reporter down there. I didn't get a chance to go that uh, Mario Duarte, the Intel a minister for Guatemala, who, by the way, is a great guy. He's a uh, um, he he immigrated to America in his younger years, served in our military for a while, then went back to serve his country. So he's a very patriotic guy, loves America, and he was speaking. Wasn't he speaking about this concern that they're a weaponizing migrants and b that they're doing so to challenge the entire notion of sovereign borders and if what you and I are saying is correct, they're basically doing it just with a sprinkler instead of a hose. Well, I, you know, I honestly, I don't have access to the reporting that they had, uh, but that, that was, it was spoken that, you know, the, the, there were actually nation states behind the, for the initial formation of caravans down there. And I can't speak to that at all. I mean, it, it kind of sounds plausible on the one hand, and on the other hand, I'd, I'd sure like to see the intel they're talking about, you know, because it's also a bit of a, I mean, you, you need to have evidence for that. To, well, well to I think you're talking like about the Russia, so. the Russia claim, but I think, I yeah. think the Latin America side is obvious because what we're talking about just, I, I know I'm being a little bit cryptic with the audience just to put it on the line. There is a caravan forming uh, that has already formed. It's in the Darien Gap in Panama, and it's exclusively of non-Central Americans. So the point of origin is lower. It's south of the Northern Triangle. Um, it's Cubans, it's Venezuelans, it's Congolese, people from Cameroon, people from Africa. So clearly... And Middle Easterners. No, you know, Todd, you're not allowed to say that. No, no, we're, we're censoring. It's like a bleep button. Bleep, bleep. No, no, you can't say Middle Easterners. No, no, they, they don't come. But but uh, I know it's funny because like even the articles that will talk about this, they won't talk about that. But anyway... Um, yeah, they don't. None of them say none of them say Middle Easterners. <laughs> but but what I'm saying is there, it's very plausible that it's forces in Venezuela dealing with because this is south of even Central America. I think that's really where you see it. Um, 
But what concerns me is Trump keeps obsessing about he's not ending catch and release. He's not shutting off border migration. He's not using 212F and Article 2 to say, look, I have, I'm the president. Courts have said for 200 years the president could block anyone from landing on our shores. He, no, we're agreeing to the notion that anyone could come here and assert. And we have to deal with them. We have to catch and release. The only thing we won't do is kind of a belligerent, rock-throwing group of thousands of people at a, at once that we won't do. That's the only thing we won't do. But what is he doing? He's gradually reprogramming DOD funding for 10 miles here, 50 miles here of fencing. But the, the sprinkler system will get in the stuff between the gaps. And yeah, that, that's, that, right. that's the concern. A partial fence ain't going to work. Well, I mean, we've talked about this a lot. Um, you know, it's catch and release. Catch and release is predicated on lack of bed space and facility space to keep them detained. So they get released with a with a court date. And, uh, you know, that's catch and release. And whether they show up for their court date or show up and lose and then, you know, are ordered to deport and never show up for the deportation, you know, that that's how we, we ended up with our 11 to 20 million illegal population in the country. So the issue is bed space and that's the linchpin of the whole, uh, and the Democrats understand this just as well as uh, some of the Republicans, because in the debate leading up to the, to the omnibus bill that we just uh, saw passed, the Democrats made a uh, kind of a uh, the, a last stand on the issue of bed space. There was a the whole thing almost foundered on the issue of bed space, where the the Democrats were trying to uh, put a cap on it, lower the the number of bed space that could number of bed spaces that could be ex, uh, built. And they must know they know it just as well as anybody that if you don't have bed space, that means you have, you know, pretty much unconstrained illegal presence in the, in the country. Uh, Cause bed space keeps them detained and provides a high consequence deterrent to those who are downstream. Nobody wants to come into the country if they know they're going to be in detention for 14 months. But but isn't it worse than what you're saying? So what you're talking about is those are for the singles. Those are for the single adults. So, yeah, you know, all things equal hold them. And, but if we don't have enough bed space, that's a way of, you know, Democrats allowing them to be released. But the problem is, even if you have five million beds in operation – if you come, if you either are under 18, and a lot of them lie and say they're under 18, even the ones that, you know, is probably a couple year buffer zone after no, that. I, I know where, I know where and, you're and going then, and then, that, And then but... the family, so, so, no, so, so Todd, what I want to know, if you could tell our audience, you personally visited the Piedras Negras caravan being housed in this facility in Mexico. How many would you say are family units or, you know, kids? I saw a lot of kids there, a lot of minors, a lot of family units. One of the they had two large uh, covered areas. One was for families, you know, parents with children. And uh, I didn't do a head count, but, you know, there were, there were quite a few families in there. And then they had another one that was for the single adults. Uh, actually, I think they had single men and then a section for single women. And, um, you know, there were plenty of, there were plenty of all, but, but there were certainly lots of uh, families. But we have the ability to, and we, we have family detention centers. 
even now. We just they're just not very big. They fill up fast. And those families coming in know that. And even yeah. so, you have something called the Flores Amendment. Yep. It says you can't keep them longer than 21 days. Uh, you know, folks figured out that that's what was happening down there. I mean, Flores has been in place for a long time, but not everybody knew about it. It was arcane. No, no, but, but uh, it's also, Todd, it's more than that. It's that Flores was just, the kid has to be released. It, what happened was we have a chart showing the migration take off from last July. What's last July? That was Judge Sabra in California that once the kid has to be released, then the parent has to be released because the media said so. And that's in law because the media controls the law. I'm not kidding. So you're right. Flores, there's two steps. There's A, a kid can't be housed more than 20 days. And then there's what they created a second level is, and therefore, so if you come with a kid, so then you'll, you have to be released because you can't be separated. Rather than both of you being detained, now it's both of you have to be released. And then that's what precipitated the largest increase. So that's what I wanted to confirm that you're seeing family units. Yeah, absolutely. There's family units there. Now, And they'll all be – I, I highly doubt that those family union, units are going to remain in Mexico on these humanitarian visas. And this is what bothers me. I mean, Trump and – Kirsten Nielsen and you know our government, they'll put out statements for their the conservative base, for the media. Oh, we're ending cash and release. We're not doing this. I mean, and it sounds great, but I mean, I get the impression that the migrants, you know, uh, the the truth is what is what resonates with them. The BS walks, everything else talks, because they know from their friends and relatives that they're getting in. I saw a local New Mexico paper sent down a reporter to Guatemala and, and you know, she was basically reporting on the fact that there were entire neighborhoods that emptied out here. And they, she met someone who was, who was remain, who had remained there and said, yeah, you know, I got a relative that's living in New Jersey today and knew all about it. Knew they, they know, meaning we might not know the nuances. Most Americans don't know the loopholes and how they do it, but they clearly see it. So, Rhetoric clearly is not stopping this. No. Uh, and, you know, all, all that um, needs to happen is for a migrant to get within earshot of a uniformed American officer, and they just say the magic words, I declare asylum. And as we know, most Central Americans are ineligible for U.S. asylum. They just are uh, rejected at rates somewhere between 70 and 90% depending on where you are. And that's so with very knows. liberal judges. Very, very, that's yeah. with very liberal immigration judges. Yeah. So, so those migrants coming in fully understand that the end game is not to gain asylum. The end game is to attack, to access the asylum legal process, yep. which gets you to catch and release and you're in pretty much forever unless you commit a serious crime. Exactly, exactly. And then, and then even then, because of the politics of separating families, I mean, if you're an American and you commit a crime, I mean, yeah, if you have kids, they're going to, you know, child protection services is going to come in and that's it. Um, but with these people, we're, we're so scared. I, I really wonder what level threshold we're going to keep them together and, and catch and release because we're just so scared of this whole uh, stigma of separating migrant families. It's okay to separate American families because, you know, we don't mean anything. Um, but, but, uh, we're running out of time here. I wanted to touch on one thing before I forget. So 
there's been a lot of talk about American holding facilities, Mexican holding facilities that are putting Central Americans in cages and mistreating them. What did you see down there? Did you see the cages? Well, like I, met, well, like I mentioned, um, it's in the interest of both the migrants and, on the inside who are in the detention, uh, in the shelters, and to their allies on the outside that would like to see them enter the United States and be accepted to float a narrative that conditions inside are, are, in, are so intolerable, so deplorable and inhumane that uh, the place needs to be shut down immediately and everybody released to go their way. And what I found was exactly the opposite. Um, I was looking for that. I read those reports and I was like, oh, this is going to be terrible when I get in there. And um, I mean, maybe they cleaned it up or something the day before I got there, but uh, and implemented all these policies and brought supplies in. But but really, it was um, very uh, the it was very comfortable for those who are in there, and it was the supplies were ample. Uh, they, the Mexicans, you can tell, really uh, expended a lot of resource to make available. Uh, you know, three square meals a day and to make sure that the place was clean and that, you know, people were who, who were ill were separated and had medical treatment. They had access to dentists. They had, you know, they were free to communicate with friends and relatives on the outside by cell phone. They had Netflix on large screen TVs. Uh, the place was clean. They had uh, you know, sanitary, uh, you know, he, you know, shampoo and, uh, feminine products and diapers and, uh, every, everything that, that anybody there could need. You could complain about the, um, maybe the mattresses wouldn't be very thick or comfortable. Uh, you know, everybody has a mattress, but for the most part, it was the conditions weren't like they were being described uh, in the, in public. So, you know, that, that's, that was, <laughs> that was just one kind of, um, uh, fulcrum upon which, uh, you know, the immigrants themselves and their, their allies on the outside were trying to kind of work to leverage them out of the, of detention and over the border. And it, it, it's just simply wasn't true. Wow. Yeah. It makes sense to me. If the Mexicans, aren't worried about them staying there long-term anyway, and they're shunting them north gradually with this sprinkler system. So then, you know, it's not worth it for them to mistreat them or anything. They'll, they'll go through the expense to house them, which frankly is probably better conditions than they're used to in their home countries. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this yeah, is I mean, just for, for whatever, for, for whatever their motivations are, the, the Mexicans, uh, we're treating the migrants on the day that I was there. And, uh, and I, I actually talked to some of the migrants. And one of them told me that, you know, he had been aware of the reports about how terrible it was in, inside. And, and he told me on the record, and I quote him saying that none of that, none of that's been true. He says, we have everything. They give us everything we, we could want here, except the freedom to go to the border right away. And now they're giving them visas. So they'll make it to the border anyway. Exactly. They want the border sooner rather than later. The Mexican government, the American government want them coming over the border, albeit not, you know, 
um, that many at a time. I mean, I would say the Trump administration officially doesn't want them, but you know, again, they're not, they're at least, they're not stopping it. They're talking about gradually constructing a fence, um, but simply not stopping catch and release. And uh, again, if you're going to take an executive action, take it on floors, take it on, on asylum, or as I've advocated upstream on cross-border migration to begin with, a president could always shut it off. So you don't even get to the Flores situation, but you know, we're going to keep advocating that by telling the truth of what is going on. Because I think if you understand what is going on, like you said, these caravans are going to continue happening and they're not just going to be even from Central America. This is a global invitation to come here and obtain cash and release. So until that is dealt with, it's going to happen and we're going to challenge the very notion of a nation state, um, that we are a sovereign nation state. Uh, Todd, we're going to have to have you on again. We're running out of time. I really want to have you on again to discuss some of these SIA caravans or non-Central American OTMs other than Mexican caravans coming north and the implications of them. So I know you're going to be all over them. They're coming. They certainly are. Well, that was informative as always, folks. That was Todd Benzman. Thanks so much for coming on. He is an ace journalist, senior fellow for Center for Immigration Studies, as well as former Texas DPS. And that's the thing. I know that you guys love having guests on and being informed about the latest things going on. Todd is a guy that should be everywhere, everywhere. Again, it's, he's not just an opinion guy like me. He's an ace reporter. But no one will have him on. Because people don't want the truth. People like being lied to. You know, I took a lot of flack last week. Fox is attacking me and Chip, Roy, and others for exposing the amnesty in this stupid bill that Trump signed. I just wanted to close with the following point on that. It's not just the fact that a good number of people who work in this field are putting the worship of a person over a policy. It's all about, okay, are you with Trump or not? It's worse than that. They're not even with Trump. I've said this from day one of this presidency. Trump is a very complicated figure. He often doesn't really want to do something, but everyone around him says to do it. So then he's forced to convince himself this is what the right thing to do is. I was proven right on jailbreak. Daniel, you're against the president. The president supports the First Step Act. Uh, He literally just called for the death penalty for drug traffickers again and said that that would be a greater deterrent and we wouldn't have problems. And how we have these blue ribbon commissions, which is exactly what the First Step Act does, but even worse. It's Jared, it's Ivanka, it's the people around him, people in the press office, people in the legislative office. So you're not even doing him any favors by saying, shut up, you have to rally around the chief. You can't, as a conservative, hold the conservative line and pressure the president to the right while everyone's pressuring to the left. You are the problem, not just in terms of doing the right thing, but even in terms of backing Trump. You're not backing him. It's stupid. To prove this point, I want to share with you some information that was put out on Twitter by Ryan James Gurdusky. 
one of the great things about doing this, as many awful people as there are in this business, there are great people that we constantly meet. And, you know, through all the acrimony on Twitter, there's also the good thing about networking and, you know, the amount of friends I've met. And I don't just mean like fake friends, you know, Facebook friends. I mean, people that I've come into contact with over time and we've developed relationships over the years, working relationships. And just recently, we kind of met each other on Twitter. Uh, Ryan is the New York political correspondent, correspondent for One News Network, which is much better than Fox. That's what you shall watch. And he uh, he was like, hey, Daniel, you do great work. I, I really appreciate what you do. And I say, hey, you know, I appreciate what you do. Uh, I love seeing your stuff. And anyway, what I found truly amazing, truly, truly amazing, he's been doing some great stuff about the angel moms. So if you remember... If you remember, last week there was a very disturbing story about how angel moms were being blocked from the White House. Now, eventually, you saw Trump meet with them right before he signed the bill and declared national emergency. I'm just going to read to you a series of tweets from Ryan, and you could draw your own conclusions. A lot of news broke in the last few days of off my Twitter account about the angel moms in a meeting with Trump about the border bill. I want to clarify how things actually went down. Angel moms came to D.C. early in the week trying to schedule meetings with Trump, Schumer, and Pelosi. Schumer's office granted them a meeting. Pelosi's office called the police on them. But Trump's White House respectfully said they couldn't take a meeting. According to two sources, the order was coming right from Mulvaney to stop a meeting with the Angel Moms. The White House has ways of stopping info from coming to Trump. Many members of the White House team who are hostile to the MAGA movement keep information from ever reaching POTUS's desk. With Trump in the dark, Angel families and their organizers brainstormed how to get POTUS's attention. They floated multiple ideas but time was running out with the majority of them having return flights on home scheduled on Thursday. And by the way, I know of one that wound up going home early. Anyway, he continues, they decided upon a press conference outside the White House where they would denounce the border bill. The White House caught wind of this and panicked. It would be horrible optics, especially given that they had worked so hard trying to stop criticism from conservative media outlets. Mercedes Schlapp called one of the organizers asking they they turn around and stated that Trump was fighting for them with this bill. The organizer refused to give, saying that $1.375 billion wasn't enough for all these dead Americans. With Mercedes unsuccessful, Kellyanne Conway called, saying, and also argued that they shouldn't do this to Trump. The fight got heated, words were exchanged, but in the end, the Angel families refused to give up their press conference in front of the White House. Kellyanne was visibly upset. After the conversation, Trump, Trump walked in the room and noticed something was wrong. After a week of keeping him in the dark, someone relented and told him about the Angel families. As the Angel families rolled near the White House, Trump called the organizer and stated he wanted to meet with them, that he had no idea and invited them for a meeting at 9.15 a.m. on Friday. Most of the Angel families had left by that point, but a few were there. But those that were 
there were happy to meet Trump. It was Trump's idea to bring them to the Rose Garden. One of the more noticeable chatty members of the White House staff was Sylvia May Davis, Deputy White House Staff Secretary, Deputy Assistant to the President. Ironically, she's one of the most hostile people towards the MAGA movement in the White House. Trump went around asking them how illegal aliens stole their loved ones, robbed them of the memories and, and, and family members. They said after that they were happy. He granted them the time, but were, were disappointed that that they, they couldn't change, change his mind on the border bill. A lot of you want to know about Sylvia May Davis. She's the deputy White House staff secretary, deputy assistant to the president, president hired by, I believe, Rob Porter. Yeah, that is true. Um, according to sources in the White House, she's a major roadblock to anything reaching POTUS's desk on immigration. Like Porter before her, she's known for stopping papers from coming to POTUS's desk, preventing staffers who share the president's view on immigration from getting policy proposals to him. You know, look, a lot of people report things that they hear, things they don't hear. This tracks with what I know. Rob Porter was a jerk. And all the people in that press shop, as are in the legislative shop, are problems. They keep stuff from him. A lot of you are wondering, doesn't the president see this? Doesn't he know this is stupid? He doesn't know what's in these bills. He'll put on a brave face. Once he agrees to sign it, he's not going to admit, I'm a dumb fool for signing it. So he'll put on a brave face and say, oh, we have more money than we know what to do with. You know he's not happy. Obviously, our goal should be to do what's right, not just to be on Team Trump. As we shouldn't be on anyone's team. We should be on Team America. But if that is your goal, fine. When you back down and agree to the swamp blocking information from Trump, you're not helping Trump. You're helping the very snakes in the White House we all wanted to get rid of. This is where you're all wrong. It's not just like, okay, I'm a Trump person. Daniel's not such a Trump person. Well, look, I, I, in my view, that's besides the point anyway. But it's wrong anyway. Isn't it funny how somehow I'm the only one holding the line when it comes to the travel ban and birthright citizenship when Trump said he wanted to get rid of it? On Fox News, they'll have one person after another Denounce it as unconstitutional. He doesn't have the authority. The travel ban. Birth, get rid of birthright citizenship for illegals. Notice Fox will only attack him from the left. So they have all these people on and how, oh, this is a great bill and conservatives who are complaining are lying. Watch this week for Fox to simultaneously, while it looks like they're defending Trump from attackers like me on the right, Notice they'll bring people on denouncing the executive action and questioning its legality. They'll attack him from the left, but they won't attack him from the right. That is the key element to know here. Remember, Fox is run by Murdoch's kids. They're leftists. What would you do if you inherit if you inherit a profitable network whose business model is built off of conservative business. Well, you're not going to get up there overnight and say, hey, conservatives, you guys are nothing but excrement, right? Because then you're going to lose your business. But what you will do is get up there and tell them that that excrement that's on your leg, you know what? It's really water. It's, it's more subtle. Oh, this is not a problem. Oh, Trump can't do this. Oh, this is not able to be done. Oh, this is how it is. All the apologies and the, 
you see the you see when the memos get out there. You see when the memo gets out for what to say and what not to say. It's a joke. That's how Fox is. Anyway, I hope to have a lot more in the coming week on the mechanics of the border. I think it's important to understand that not only are we continuing catch and release across the board for the private caravans, a lot of the private caravans are from the main caravans. We're not even stopping the belligerent caravans that challenge our sovereignty blatantly and are sponsored by very sinister elements both inside our country and outside our country. We're going to report a lot more on that in the coming days. Send me your notes, comments, concerns, questions, and criticism. Daniel Horowitz, sorry, D Horowitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at rmconservative. Happy President's Day, but we're going to look forward to George Washington's birthday on the 22nd. God bless you all. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.